there, this is Ellen Weatherford. And this is Christian Weatherford. We're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We're not zoological experts, but we try to get the most accurate information we can. I'm excited. I have some cool surprises in store for you this episode. Same. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) Uh, what animal do you have for us to talk about this week, baby? It's your turn to go first. Yes. So jumping right into it, I'm talking about the pom-pom crab, also known as the boxer or boxing crab. Nice. Yes. And this is actually a genus of crabs called Libya, L-Y-B-I-A. Not like the country of Libya. Not spelled that way, at least. Okay. All right. So this is like a whole group of crabs. There's not just like one specific one. Correct. Um, But it's not like a huge, huge group. I think it was around 10 to 15 species in there. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So when you say pom-pom. Yes. Do you mean pom-pom like what cheerleaders use? Yes. Excellent. Now, I am talking about the marine pom-pom crab. Are there non-marine pom-pom crabs? Yes. So not to be confused with the freshwater pom-pom crabs. And more on that difference later because it's not just a difference of where you'll find them. Right, because I would imagine that like it would have to be a very different creature for mm-hmm. it to be living in a very different environment. Yes. Interesting. Now, pom-pom crab was submitted by Justice Lively and Ilan Donmich. Thank you both. And listeners who have been listening for a long time may recognize Ilan's name from our Assassin Bug episode, a former guest. Yes, I believe from last year. Yes. That was a great episode. Very long. Had a lot to say about Assassin Bugs, but completely mind-blowing. Awesome. So. I've pulled my information from iNaturalist. As well as a paper that I will cite more specifically later. Can you give people a quick, like, one-sentence summary of what iNaturalist is? Uh, iNaturalist is a website where you can, as a a regular person, Mm -hmm. upload pictures and sightings of animals with your own kind of best guess at what species it is. But then it kind of, what's this called? Community-sourced information? It's community science, yeah. Where others can then correct the identification or confirm that identification Mm -hmm. and add other pieces of information as as necessary. Yeah. So they kind of... Uh, conglomerates that data for some species and you can see where these sightings are happening and that kind of thing. And it also, you know, hosts profiles of certain species pulling information from other places. Sure. I love iNaturalist. I use it on my phone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I get a lot of people that like find a cool animal like around and they'll send me a picture of it and ask me if I know what it is. And a lot of times I don't. So I save the picture and I upload it into iNaturalist and iNaturalist actually has like, uh, it's like Shazam basically, (laughs) like for for animals where you can upload a picture and then it'll give you its best guess as to what it thinks that species is. So even if you have no clue what it is, Mm -hmm. you can just put it up there and then they'll kind of take it from there yeah i did this recently with a picture of a monarch butterfly from our backyard yeah it's it's really cool i i also kind of use it as like a real life pokedex <laughs> like every time i see a cool animal that i get a picture of i yeah. put it i keep it on my naturalist on my profile as like mm. it's like a little roster of all the the real life pokemon i've seen isn't that cool yeah i love it so yeah uh, a little bit about this crab it is a small crab Uh, So we're talking about in the magnitude of about two and a half centimeters wide or about an inch wide. That is tiny. Yes. And they can come in different colors, often have like a a fluffy look to them sometimes. Now, here's why they're called pom-pom crabs. Yes, please. They look like that the ends of their big claws, but in most crabs are their big pincher claws. They Uh look like they're carrying fluffy pom-poms. Excellent. I'm so happy for them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in these crabs, what those actually are, are anemones. It's not part of the crab then? No. Is this by choice of the anemone or not? (laughs) Uh, No. I don't think the anemone has much choice in this. Because like sometimes you'll see like (laughs) animals have like a symbiotic relationship with each other, right? Where like one animal is kind of accepting this position in relation to another because it benefits them both. I'm just wondering if this is maybe something that benefits the anemone also. Uh... Not much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get more into that. The crab seems like they're kind of taking the reins here. And it's it's a it's a weird case of symbiosis because it's hard to to kind of ID who is the host in this relationship. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. A lot of what I'm talking about is a specific species, and that one is found in the Red Sea. Where's the Red Sea? It sits between Africa and Asia. Got it. Okay. Yes. It's like so an like, inlet of the Indian Ocean. Got it. Now, the taxonomic family is Xanthidae. With an X. Oh, that's creative. I was going to say the notable revolution relative there is mud crabs 
and I put <gasps> play Skyrim battle music. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what does that battle music sound like? So you'll do that, but yeah. you won't do literally any impression of any animal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Yes, for the the least uh, worrying enemy in Skyrim, I should say. And you'll never be able to fast travel again. (laughs) Now, I'll get right into our first category of effectiveness. These are physical attributes and traits that are helping it do what it does. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Oh, okay. Are you counting the anemone as part of their body? (laughs) No. So I was about to say... All of that jazz is mostly going to be in ingenuity. Mm, okay. Yes. So they're they're kind of making up for lacking some right. in in their like built in stuff. Right. But a couple of things to talk about here. So one is they have hooks designed for holding the anemones in their claws. Oh. Yeah. So these small hooks that slightly embed in the column of the sea anemone. This also makes it so that those claws aren't very useful for much else. Really. Unfortunately. It kind of the way you described it as hooks makes me think it's kind of like Velcro. Yeah, that would probably make sense. I, I didn't go too deep on that, but that would make sense. Um, so yeah, those claws are like specifically designed to hold anemones. And in most crabs, those are the claws that they're usually using to eat food with. So how are they eating food then if their claws are being taken up by... Like imagine mm. if like you have your hands and you're like, actually, I'm going to take my hands and everything that they're good for, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to completely specialize them in only holding boxing gloves. Yes. <laughs> Uh, more on that in the next category. Okay. The only other thing I had here for effectiveness is their size. They're tiny. Yeah. Little guys. So this is this is just a matter of opinion, but their whole approach to life <laughs> <laughs> probably has diminishing returns as you scale up in size here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so like being small is helping them. I think, at least, based oh. on my understanding of what they're doing. And I can circle back to that. Okay. All right. Now... I'll just dig right into it. Ingenuity. Yeah, it sounds like we're it sounds like we're ingenuity loading this one. <laughs> yes. Um, so ingenuity is the smart things they do. This could be hunting methods, could be tool use, that sort of thing. I'm giving a full ten out of ten. Really? Yes. For a little crab. Yes. So of course the dual wielding sea anemones. <laughs> <laughs> so they have one in each claw, and they wave them around to scare predators. That would totally work on me. <laughs> if I was like going for a snack and started like waving mm-hmm. around uh, something that I know is going to like sting and harm me if right. I touch it, that would totally work on me. And this is probably a good time to talk about it. I don't know if we've ever talked about anemones like in depth, but uh, no, you're right. So anemones are part of the the cynodaria. Oh, nadarians. That's what they are. Is the sea silent? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, they belong to the, the Nadaria phylum. Got it. Uh, which has things like jellyfish. Mm. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the other things. <laughs> Anemones <laughs> are one of those things that I always. So I always have to Google them to make mm. sure that they're actually animals, right? Because they don't like feel like they are, right? Yeah. But then that always throws me off because there is mm. also a type of flower called anemones. Yes. So then I get confused. Because uh, it's like, yes, they're both <laughs> because they're different things. You often see them referred to as sea anemones. Yeah, to get around this. <laughs> I guess the animal was named after the flower. Maybe. Uh, but they do kind of look like flowers in some forms. Uh, they're very soft and squishy. Uh, they do have stinging cells. And then they have these like arms or petals that kind of pull food into their mouth parts. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've seen Finding Nemo, mm-hmm. that's when Nemo lives inside. Yeah. So that that's one of the classic uh, symbiosis relationships with anemones is mm-hmm. clownfish. They use them as... A house or protection from other animals. I like that anemones are kind of like buddying up with all the other sea life. They're like, hey, bud, <laughs> you're a fish. You want to you wanna team up? Hey, you're a crab. You want to team up? Yeah. If those are buddy relationships, this is something <laughs> much darker, I think. Oh, no. This is a, a deeply toxic friendship. We need a marine therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what anemones are. Those are typically on rocks and coral and things. We've seen many anemones. Right. Uh, we saw some while we were tide pooling in mm-hmm. California, but also we often see them in touch tanks in aquariums where yes. you can pet them and like, don't just go around touching anemones. These are ones that are like specifically in a touch tank right. where like there's people there like, yes, you can touch this one. It's okay. Uh-huh. And you can still, while they're trying to sting you, but you're obviously like 
the human body is just too big to for their stinging cells to have an effect on you, but you still kind of get this slight little, like almost like a static clinging effect mm, yeah. from their stinging cells. No, I don't know if that's all anemones or not. No, I, I mean, those are the ones that we sure. have pet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's holding these anemones in its claws. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, now, it's also doing this to use them to collect food. Okay. And then we'll eat the food, stealing it from them. No! <laughs> oh my gosh, so the anemone is like, oh, I'm getting a free ride. Right. I'm going to grab all this food out of the water. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> um, now, you might also know that crabs molt, right? Mm. So they shed their shells every once in a while and mm-hmm. regrow new ones. That's how they get bigger. Right. Uh, so when these crabs do that, they have to then carefully pick their anemones back up after they shed their molt. Right? Oh, you don't want to lose it. That's yeah. true. Oh, inter- do they have to like take it off, put it down, and then like molt? And then what a complicated maneuver. Right. <laughs> got to like protect your anemone. Uh-huh. Now, um, earlier I mentioned don't confuse these with the freshwater crabs. Those do not use anemones. Those grow its own pom-pom-esque hair on its claws. Wow. Yeah. So in those, it's part of the crab. This one is not part of the crab. So, like, clearly the potential's there. Like, you could just put in the work (laughs) and grow your own hair and not have to harass these anemones. (laughs) Now, granted, I don't know what the freshwater one uses that for. I don't Mm. know if it serves the same purpose or not. But visually, it's similar. Mm. Now, anemones are actually all saltwater animals. There are no freshwater anemones. Right. You'll sometimes hear of things called hydra so particularly in fish tanks and that kind of thing yeah um they're like microscopic right they're pretty tiny now so sometimes those are referred to as being very small anemones but uh they're actually different okay but they do belong to the same phylum of nadaria but they're like anemones and hydra different classes sure in that same phylum Mm mm-hmm Similar vibes, though. Right. A big part of the points here, you know, of course, one is using the anemones, but right. one is managing the anemones. <laughs> Anemone <laughs> management. I love this. So first, they do not hatch with anemones. Okay. Right? So you got to get them somewhere. They have to be acquired. <laughs> I'm in anemone acquisition. <laughs> and some of these anemones are only found associated with their host crabs. What? Yes. Really? They don't just like grow <laughs> wild and free? So this particular study with a specific species in the Red Sea, mm-hmm. they could not find this anemone in the in the area that they were studying in the four years they were there. Is this a domesticated <laughs> sea anemone? Is this are crabs domesticating things? <laughs> so they're not they're not sure is, is the the gist of it. They're not sure if they just if it's somewhere special that they're not, they didn't look mm. or didn't find, or if it's some sort of like they used to be around and now the, the anemones being cared for by crabs are the only specimens. Left. This is straight up domesticated. This is like chickens, like <laughs> cows, you know, like right? this is like our domesticated, like cows and pigs mm. and stuff like that. Like you're not going to find, well, I mean, now these days you will find pigs just running right. free because we've got feral pigs and stuff right. like that. But like you're not going to find like a herd of cows just sort of. Mm-hmm. roaming wild and free. <laughs> right. But with other species of the pom-pom crabs, they you, you will find those anemones that they typically carry like mm. on their own standing free. I guess to me that would maybe imply that like they must be providing some benefit to the anemone. If the anemone is like evolving alongside them, like they must be providing some sort of benefit that the anemone is like specializing for. Maybe. I don't know. Now, in the ones where they're not finding the anemones elsewhere outside of crab ownership uh-huh it's a pet <laughs> yeah it's and we pet. know and we know they don't hatch with anemones right where are they getting their first anemones oh from? where are they getting them from <laughs> <laughs> can you just run down to the anemone store and pick up fisher price baby's first anemone so this particular species is called libia leptochelis when the crab loses one of its anemones the crab tears the remaining one into two parts okay is this out of spite Anemones regenerate. Oh. <laughs> I, I thought it was like spite. Like, if I can't have it, no one can. And <laughs> if then, I can't like, have two, I want none. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so, yeah, they'll tear it in half. And after regeneration, which only takes a couple days for the size of anemone, it again has two whole anemones. I love the infinite money glitch. <laughs> Like, we found this exploit of infinite sea anemones. <laughs> this is the only known case where one animal induces asexual reproduction in another animal. They're breeding them. <laughs> this is fully domestication, right? Or They're at like, least, 
or at least it was the only known case when this study was done back in 2017. And I still don't want to name it because there's a second part of this that (gasps) will give it away. No way. (laughs) Now, a crab with no anemones will will confront another crab who does. I'm imagining like a a Western movie, ghost town, high noon, <laughs> like crab rolls up to the other crab and it's right. got like the, the slow pan to their hip. Right. <laughs> so the crab with no, with no anemones will fight the one that does. Okay. Trying to either steal a whole anemone or even just tear off a chunk of one. You're bringing claws to an anemone fight. Right. And then after that fight is done and the crab has successfully at least gotten a piece of an anemone, Mm -hmm. after regeneration is all done, both crabs now have two anemones. That's true. You don't need to steal the whole thing, right? You can take a little bit (laughs) of it and then let the rest grow around it. It's like stealing, like, what do you, like when you go to like a a plant store or something like that and you just pick Mm. little snippets up off the ground and then like propagate them. Right. You're not supposed to do that. I think that's, I think that's (laughs) stealing actually. (laughs) I would love to see some like crabs griefing each other by just like scuttling up to one and just like taking a little chunk out of their anemone and being like bye like (laughs) don't want to go through the whole fight right now theft being the source of anemones (laughs) here is also supported by dna testing that showed all pairs that they tested were genetically identical to each other so it's just one big giant clone crab Mm -hmm. pet everyone's got the same anemone pet (laughs) (laughs) uh now Another thing you might think about hearing this is, well, what happens if the anemones get too big? Because oh, if you're sure. familiar, they can get much larger than, uh, you know, an yeah. inch wide crab. Yeah. So what they do is the crab limits the food intake of the anemones, effectively designing their own bonsai anemones. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This just feels so much like what we do to like domesticated animals, you know, like it feels worse curating their body. I mean, not if you look at <laughs> yeah. like the way we do to a lot of the animals that we like breed for consumption, yeah. right? Or even, you know, the fish that we keep in tanks and stuff, you know, right. like limiting their limiting their intake so that they can only grow to a certain size. Yeah. Like, well, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, balance that the crab has to strike. Mm-hmm. It, it itself needs nutrition, but they don't want to deprive the anemone of all nutrition because then it will die, right? Right, and then it's not going to help. Yeah. Then they're going to have to go fight somebody all over again. <laughs> I'm imagining that like, if you're a crab, your claws are probably what you're going to use to fight. But if you're using your claws to carry around this big, fluffy, squishy anemone, mm-hmm. it's kind of like putting giant marshmallows on your claws, right? Like, <laughs> who are you going to fight with that? I mean, I guess it's enough to steal soft, squishy anemone parts. Mm, But like I mentioned earlier, their claws aren't good for much else. So if a crab loses its anemones and is not able to replenish that stock, it's likely going to um, starve in the wild. This is so like diabolical. They have so much drama. I bet there's a lot of drama in the crab community over stealing each other's <laughs> anemones. Because then it's like your pet, right? That's right. like your it's like your dog <laughs> or something. So all of that information was from the article I will now cite. Oh, thank you. Titled, Boxer Crabs Induce Asexual Reproduction of Their Associated Sea Anemones by Splitting an Intraspecific Theft. Diabolical. That's by Israel Skinetzer et al., found in the pure j journal in 2017 nice that is incredible because they're little they're such little like you'd, you'd imagine crabs to have very like sort of simple mm-hmm. you know be very simple-minded little creatures i've never really heard of such complex behavior from right a crab i guess the only room for improvement there is to not fight over the anemones perhaps if they may be like socialized like yeah. had some sort of like communal like anemone breeding like agricultural program right. where you could just like breed anemones and then like distribute them <laughs> now, amongst this crab community it's worth mentioning that these studies were done you know in a controlled environment where mm-hmm. they, they 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 had previously heard anecdotal evidence of this but wanted to test it and show it mm. so you know they put them in the situation to where the crab no has no anemones its only option is to steal from one that does so in the wild who knows if that's the only option they have because you know if there's this you know secret garden they have anemones that they haven't found maybe mm-hmm. they just go back to that well, also, like, I'm wondering if that would benefit the crab in any... Because it would benefit the entire species if they were, like, mm. you know, sharing anemones with each other rather than fighting over them. But, like, would it benefit the individual? Because then would it be, like, helping its competition? Like, I wonder how that would... Well, I would guess, you know, in the time that it takes to regenerate more anemone, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're losing productivity of food collection, right? Right. So maybe that's some... In- 
and some drive to not allow anemones to be stolen right. or, or damaged. Hear me out. What if, and I'm making this up, what if they courted each other by giving each other snippets of their anemones? <laughs> like their little, like a sea flat. I'm anthropomorphizing like crazy. Sure. But what if they like offered each other, if you were a pom-pom crab and I was a pom-pom uh-huh, crab, uh-huh. I would definitely offer you a piece of my anemone. Oh, that's so nice. And then we could fight to the death for it. <laughs> like all the, the, you know, aggression of fighting to the death. But once we realize we each have pieces of anemone, like, oh. I guess we're cool then. <laughs> Bye. Mission accomplished. All right. <laughs> we're set. Everybody has the correct number of anemones. It did mention that um, female crabs seem to have larger anemones. Good for them. Yeah. Go, girl. Get that bag. <laughs> girl boss. <laughs> perhaps a reason was uh, had to do with maybe needing more defense for their eggs. Mm, I see. Because like anemones are, they, they work well, like you mentioned, not just for like food capture, right? Mm-hmm. You can wave them around and capture food out of the air. Right. But anemones also have like these really vicious stingers, right? Like yeah. they can stun or even kill like small fish. Mm-hmm. So if they're using them defensively, like to a human, right? That wouldn't be much of a defense. They're waving up an anemone at us. We're like, whatever, big deal. It's nothing to me. But like to a something that might be threatening to the pom-pom crab, you know? Right. That might be an effective deterrent. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to want to take a big bite full of spicy well, anemones. They'll try, but then you know they'll get a little a little zap into yeah. the into them. I say zap because that's just how it's portrayed, but it's not electrical. <laughs> it's tiny little stinging cells that like shoot out into the right. Touches them. SpongeBob really set that sort of yeah. uh, precedent for making us <laughs> think of stings it was like electric shocks yeah moving into our last category of what a wild ride that was right and um that behavior was heavily hinted at and i believe justice lively's submission very good yes excellent pitch aesthetics how cute how cool they look etc i'm gonna nine out of ten are you factoring the anemones into okay it's basically like accessories, right? Yeah, that's true. They got a little feather boa, you know. (laughs) I'm gonna be nine out of ten. Uh they're small, they're cute, they're colorful. But Are they're these... also a little deranged. Oh, hmm? What? Just, what does that mean? <laughs> just because of the, this relationship with the anemones. Oh, I was like, <laughs> I was like <laughs> after like the the weird energy you had with horses last time. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you have the most incomprehensible aesthetics. Scheming. <laughs> I'm just gonna look up one real quick because while like I feel like I've seen like documentaries about them, it's been a long time. I haven't seen pictures of them recently. Oh, they are cute. They have little like colorful bands on them mm-hmm. and stuff they're a little they're not the kind of crab that has shells like the like a right. big shell on the back or anything like that it's a not hermit no it's a little scuttly crab is there a pokemon of this there is a pokemon who has boxing gloves right yeah it's a crab with boxing gloves in a, in a more recent generation crab brawler yeah okay yeah there's crab brawler and then it evolves into crab abominable which is like a yeti crab. A yeti crab yeah. yeah. But but crab roller looks kind of like this, except except it doesn't have the fluffy bits. I would have liked to see fluffy bits. Mm. It has like boxing gloves on its claws. It does make me think of what some other Pokemon that have kind of developed with a symbiotic relationship, like the Slope Bro. Oh, with Shelter on its yeah. tail? Yeah. I can see that. Is that right? Slow Poke? Slow Bro. And the Slow King. Okay. Got slow it. Bro has the Shelter on its tail. On Slow King, the uh, Shelter's on its head. Yes. Yeah. Got it. I like I I'm wondering what benefit the crab is giving to the anemone. Like obviously the crab is like transporting it around and kind of propagating it well, and stuff like that, but I mean earlier texts would say that you know it was theorized it was giving mobility and right. nutrition opportunity, but the crab is limiting that intake. Right. So I guess it's not necessarily some for the for the anemone at least it's not necessarily benefiting them. It's that the crab is just kind of like imposing its own right. like evolution onto the anemone. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess the question is, would the anemone be better off without the crab? <laughs> I mean, I guess it hasn't really had a chance, right? right. Like, crab I mean, is just... in some species, right, we, we were saying the, the anemones can be found mm-hmm. outside crabs. Right. But in that one species, it isn't. So maybe that's their only option. Interesting. I didn't have anything for conservation status on this one. They're popular in home aquariums. I would love to see one in a home aquarium. Yeah. Anyone that's listening to this that has one of these, please take a picture and send it to us. <laughs> I want to see it. That's adorable. Also, tell me their name. <laughs> if they don't have a name, already make one up. Okay. <laughs> what a delightful creature. Thank you. Yes. 
Uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Okay. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kilmerton. We do a podcast called the Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing comedy forever, and we should both quit. So why don't you listen up <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business, but this awful world. And find out why we can't. <laughs> because we love it so. <laughs> Jackie and Lori Show. Every week here on MaximumFun.org. I'm sure you've noticed how giant corporations are controlling more and more about what we consume, whether it's our food, our news, or even the shows we enjoy. The Greatest Generation is a show that stands up to Big Star Trek and says no. We can laugh about costumes that fit too tightly in the groin area. We can make a Star Trek podcast that's basically only about that. The Greatest Generation, the show for free and independent thinkers about Star Trek. And the groins of different costumes. Reviewing every episode in order. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org. You'll be doing your part in telling the Star Trek industrial complex that they can't control your mind. All right. So enough about the crab. (laughs) What have you got, Ellen? This week I'm talking about the morning dove. Oh, I know. And that is morning as an M-O-U-R. Mm-hmm. Not not like morning, like the time of day. Morning as in like... Sad. Yes, a sad time. And the scientific name is Zenaida Macrora. This was submitted by Divine Dowd. Thank you. Wow. And uh, I'm getting my information from the American Bird Conservancy, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, the Audubon Society, and, you know, other stuff that I'll cite when it comes up so that I don't spoil anything. Mm-hmm. If you're not super familiar with this particular dove, it is, you know, kind of small. They're about 12 inches long, which is 30 centimeters. Uh, They tend to be pretty slim. They're maxing out at only about six ounces, except for the fat ones in our backyard. (laughs) (laughs) We have some in our backyard. They're so chunky. It's really cute. I mean, sometimes they puff up their feathers, so I think they're maybe just like looking puffier. But yeah, yeah, it's a a really just like a tannish brown color. It has some little, maybe some rosy spots on it, some black like spots on the wings. Mm. Um, uh, They're found in most of North America, including all of the contiguous United States. All of it. All right. Yeah. Sea to shining sea, this one is, as well as most of Mexico and southern Canada and throughout the Caribbean islands. Oh, okay. So they've just kind of got like the whole like northwestern quadrant of the globe just on lock. All like, right. You can find <laughs> it just about anywhere. They're very, very common. Their taxonomic family is Columbidae, which are the doves and pigeons. Okay. We've mentioned this before when we talked about pigeons. This We actually talked about pigeons twice on this show so mm. far. Once with Rosemary Mosco from Bird and Moon, um, and then once I did an episode where I talked about the just the common pigeon. There is no taxonomic distinction between doves and pigeons. Oh. It's just purely whatever people felt like calling them when they... It's one of those, like, you'll know it when you see it sort of things. Like, there's no difference between what we call a dove and what we call a pigeon. I wonder if there's any notable change in that naming based on the perception of the word pigeon. Right. (laughs) It's funny because, like, there are some very extravagant, luxurious, beautiful-looking pigeons. Mm -hmm. And yet we still associate the word pigeon with being very, like, I don't know, lowly, you know? And dove seems to imply, like, a more regal sort of air. Right. Like, because pigeon is often associated with urban pest. Right. right? (laughs) Yeah. Which it shouldn't be. Right. Um, But, you know, there's no, like, rule about, you know, which ones are doves and which ones are pigeons. It just boils down to what their name is, like, what their common name is. There are 344 species in this family. So there are many birds in the dove and pigeon family. That is including the common pigeon and the dearly departed dodo. Really? Yes. The dodo was a pigeon. Weird, right? Huh. Yeah, the dodo's closest living relative is the Nicobar pigeon. Weird, there, right? Is there some sort of weird explanation for this? Or is it just, just a counterintuitive thing? You know, they lived on an island. They uh-huh. lived on the island of Mauritius. And probably just their like seclusion on this island made them get so incredibly different from most other pigeons. Weird. Yeah, just a very strange pigeon. Huh. There is also the, the also extinct passenger pigeon, yes. which is more closely related to this dove. 
So to get into the ratings for the morning dove, starting with effectiveness, I'm giving them a seven out of 10. I'm going to start with uh, something that they have that a lot of other birds have, not all of them, but a lot. It's called a crop. You heard of a crop when you're talking about birds? No. So this is like a bonus inventory slot in their digestive system. Oh. It's this muscular pouch that's like near their throat. And what they do is they eat a lot of food at once. So for doves, this is like almost entirely seeds. Hmm. So when we see them foraging on the ground, like underneath our bird feeder or something like that, they're picking up seeds. They're really interested in the, the hard little seeds they pick up off the ground. They're like ground foragers, right? So they eat tons of food at once, and then they actually store it in their crop. Hmm. Like, they don't necessarily digest it right then and there. They store it in their crop. And then later, when they're, like, resting, that's when they digest all that food in their crop. So it lets them take in a lot of food at once and then, you know, digest it later. So it helps them kind of, like, expand the amount of time that that food is good for, basically. Hmm. An interesting thing about the crop in pigeons and doves specifically, and there's some other birds that do this, but the crop secretes a pale yellow substance that is about the texture of cottage cheese. Mm. So it's like a chunky, pale yellow sort of goop that is secreted from the lining, the inner lining of the crop. And this is called pigeon milk, which they regurgitate to feed their young. Oh, So what's interesting about this is that both male and female pigeons produce pigeon milk. So morning doves also do produce this this pigeon milk. And also, in Animal Crossing New Horizons, (laughs) there's a little cafe. Oh, no. (laughs) There's a little cafe in the museum, and it's run by a pigeon named Brewster, who's the little barista. Oh, no. And when you get coffee from Brewster, when you order it, he will ask you if you want pigeon milk in your coffee. (laughs) And you can say yes or no. It has no impact on anything. Like, it doesn't, you can say yes or no, it doesn't matter. But it's just a little, he just asks you if you want some in there. He just turns around and you hear some strange sounds. You know, I've said yes before. (laughs) Uh And like, it doesn't. There's no like bonus animation or anything that I think would have been really funny, but I also think that wouldn't have played well with sure. audiences because this is meant to be a very like An adorable, injury. like cute and relaxing game. And I think uh, the a pigeon vomiting into your coffee would not. Uh, <laughs> I think that would wreck the vibe. Well, he's really good at it, so he does a little latte art with it. When am I going to be able to order a pigeon milk latte? <laughs> They're like, hey, do you want whole milk or do you want uh, oat milk or almond milk or pigeon milk? (laughs) It's (laughs) pre-curdled. It's not chemically similar to like mammal milk, right? But it is it is it is produced by actually like the body is induced to produce it by prolactin, which is the same hormone. Interesting, right? It is weird, even though it's not like chemically similar to to our milk. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> and actually, the amount of crop milk that a pair of doves can produce is believed to be a limiting factor of their clutch size. So when a pigeon or a dove lays eggs in a nest, mm-hmm. it is almost always exactly two eggs. It is very rarely more or less. It's almost always exactly two. Mm. And this is believed to be because they want to have a backup, right? You don't want to only have one egg because then if something happens to that egg, like it doesn't hatch or it gets stolen or something, you want to have another egg, like just in case something happens. But they can't physically produce more milk to feed more than two babies. Mm. So it's thought that that is actually keeping them from being able to lay more eggs at a time. Makes sense. Yeah. It is an interesting, like, way that they feed their babies. It's just maybe not the most, like, it's not offering enough for them to, like, expand their clutch size if they wanted to. Right, because it's energy intensive, right? It is already, they are, they're already very, like, doting parents. So it's already energetically costly for them to have a lot of babies. Now, do both babies usually survive to adulthood? You know, I didn't find any, like, stats on that, Mm -hmm. but... They do only lay two eggs at a time, but they lay eggs throughout the year, 
rather than just like only during one particular breeding yeah. season. So they can have up to like six clutches of eggs per year. Okay. So I think they're just having tons of babies. <laughs> well, I asked because I think we've talked about another bird that did something like this, but usually in the backup case, it was, you know, the, the stronger and healthier one is the one that gets fed. Oh, that was the shoe bill. That's the right. The shoe bill. They pick one. Yes. So like the one that seems like it's going to make it, then they'll like you know, allocate all resources mm-hmm. to the stronger chick. This isn't like that. They'll okay. take care of both babies. Oh, oh, yeah. Good. They're actually really good parents. I'll oh, talk right. about that in a little bit. Um, another interesting thing about their bodies, though, is that they can drink through their beak like a straw using suction, which is uncommon for birds. I'm a little jealous. Right? Like, <laughs> so for other birds, and I mean, really for us also, you know, if you if you want to drink something, you have to just kind of like fill your mouth with it. And then you have to either like lift your head or something to swallow it, right? But like a morning dove could just stick its beak directly mm-hmm. down into the water and then like slurp it up. I mean, we could slurp it up, but we're also getting our nose wet. It's messy. Wet. <laughs> it's not good. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then when they do drink water, they can drink water with a surprisingly high salt content. Oh. They're really good at processing salt. Not quite to like ocean water levels. Sure. Um, it's not quite that salty, but they can drink like brackish water which is really important because a lot of their range is over deserts like arizona and mexico right like they thrive in these deserts and in those deserts there's a lot of brackish groundwater Hmm. so because they can tolerate that salt they can drink that brackish groundwater and survive where not a lot of other birds can Mm. yeah so you'll see them kind of thriving in an environment where most other birds wouldn't be able to well good on them yeah good job you're doing good morning doves The last thing I had for their effectiveness is that they're powerful flyers. Um, They have pointed wings and a long tail, and they have these huge pectoral muscles. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've seen, like, a dove or, you know, even a pigeon, they have this sort of big, round chest, like, big, puffy chest. And that's because they are ripped. (laughs) They're absolutely (laughs) shredded in there. That's where they need it. Yeah, so they have these really powerful pectoral muscles that let them flap their wings really hard. And they can fly at uh, speeds of up to 55 miles per hour, which is really fast fast for a little guy. I did kind of dock them a little bit because they get killed a lot. You know, they get preyed on by things like peregrine falcons. You know, they forage on the ground. So they yeah. spend a lot of time on the ground and then they get... Prime uh, pickings. For... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff down there <laughs> that's going to mess with, you know, like coyotes and, and cats mm. and all sorts of stuff like that. So they do get eaten a lot. I think that like prolific breeding is yeah. to make up for that because to make up for the fact that they get eaten so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That brings me to ingenuity for the morning dove. And this is going to sound really harsh. (laughs) But I'm really comparing them to pigeons. And I gave pigeons really high in ingenuity. Uh I'm giving the morning dove a 4 out of 10 for ingenuity. Okay. I'm sorry. There's not a ton going on in there. (laughs) I don't think. I don't think there's a lot of activity behind those big, beautiful eyes. <laughs> so I will say the things I really gave them points for is parenting. They are egalitarian parents. So the male will collect nesting materials and the female builds the nest. And then both parents incubate the eggs. So both parents will actually take turns sitting on the nest. Mm-hmm. And then once the babies hatch, both parents stay with the babies and, and raise them until they're ready to leave. So very egalitarian doting parents. If a predator gets too close to a morning dove's nest, the parents will sometimes throw themselves to the ground and then drag a wing behind them and limp away from the nest. They're faking an injury. They're okay. pretending like they have a broken wing. And it's to get the predator's attention and lure them oh, away from the nest. I see. So they like use themselves as bait uh-huh. to to bring the predator's attention away from the nest. And ideally, once the predator is far enough away from the nest, the bird will just get up and fly away, like drop the act and then just leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't work every time, right? Like it, it could end up being like a self-sacrificing move, but it's an interesting tactic. Yeah, yeah. I guess as long as one of the parents is still there, I guess the nest still has a chance. Yeah, they could still be okay. I think probably my biggest deduction for their ingenuity is 
their tendency to build their nests in locations that are comically unsuitable to the point of hostility. (laughs) They will build their nests in the most laughably wrong places imaginable. So you'll see photos of morning doves with nests in planters that are just like on people's like front porches. Mm -hmm. No coverage whatsoever. It's just like in a bucket, basically. Just like in people's gutters, like on their roofs, Uh-oh. bike baskets, oh. window sills. Sometimes they'll just do on a window sill. Right. Like there's nothing there. It's just like a surface, and they'll be like, "That's fine. I'll build my nest here." Um, their nests don't tend to be as pathetic as like pigeon net, you know, like common pigeon nests, which sometimes they'll be like stick on ground. That is my <laughs> nest, right? Uh, they don't tend to be that like scrungly, but morning doves have sort of a reputation for building their nests in just incorrect places entirely. In fact, if I had a nickel for every police vehicle temporarily rendered inoperable by morning doves building nests in their windshields, I'd have at least 15 cents. What? (laughs) I found three separate unrelated stories of police vehicles in which a morning dove built a nest Mm -hmm. and that police vehicle had to be removed from service until the eggs hatched and the birds flew away. Like by choice or was it some sort of mechanical failure? It seemed like it was by choice. They just didn't want to disturb the birds. I think it was actually illegal to disturb the birds. Really? Yeah. So like they legally could not do anything about like (laughs) could not mess with the birds. Okay. Uh, So I found three instances of this happening. It was in Parma, Ohio in April of 2016, Perland, Texas in April of 2017, and Carrollton, Texas in April of 2021. So three separate news articles articles about this exact thing happening and it's always in the windshield huh they're like wedged up in the wiper blades like that can't possibly be a comfortable or safe place <laughs> to have your like baby nursery right like it's like that idea all around okay. and i i really enjoyed this quote from one of the articles from the the article that was from perlin texas in this article by uh dana burke this is my favorite line a Perland police officer is apparently in need of alternate transportation as a mother morning dove has commandeered Unit 187, <laughs> which is a way more exciting headline <laughs> because that creates like a mental image of a of a dove just like in a high speed chase or maybe like hot wiring a cop car and driving off with it. Amazing. <laughs> a dove chose crime. <laughs> I, I have to wonder if this is like some sort of anarchist operation by the doves. What is the code for <laughs> <laughs> for dove crime? Dove crime. <laughs> uh, hilarious. So uh, the last thing I wanted to say for their ingenuity, uh, when morning doves are taking off or landing, you can hear this like squeaky sound. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Cause whenever they like take off yeah. or land, you hear this kind of like beep, 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 beep sound. Yeah. That's They're not doing it with their mouth or their voice. What is it? It's their wings. Their wings, they have these modified flight feathers yeah. that whistle in the wind. Oh, okay. I thought you were about to say they have like arthritis or something. What? <laughs> I was like, like creaky bones? Yeah. No. Oh, it's like same, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's their flight feathers. It's called a wing whistle. This is actually this like idea of a sound that's produced but not by the mouth. It's it's not a vocalization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's called a sonation. So it's a, a sound that they are producing with a part of their body that's not usually used to make sounds. Okay. And the reason I bring this up is because if a bird is fleeing from a predator or startled or panicked by something, it's going to flap its wings a lot faster than if it was just like casually calmly Hmm. taking off and when they do this it makes a much more rapid tempo whistle so like you can hear a difference between whether they're taking off in fear or taking off just because they're ready to go other birds nearby can hear that sound identify it as either a panicked or a calm takeoff and then respond accordingly so if they hear that a morning dove is fleeing like if they hear that it's panicking and flying away then they'll take off too though they know something dangerous is over there so it serves as this like little alarm 
that like lets everybody in the area know like hey i'm scared of something we should probably all be scared of something and then like a domino effect yeah so then everybody gets up and takes off right i couldn't give them a lot of like credit for this ingenuity wise because like that's not necessarily something they're doing on purpose it's just they're they're taking off and their wings are producing a sound as a result of that that's just being interpreted by every all the other birds mm-hmm. nearby mm-hmm. in fact in 2008 uh researcher seth coleman tested this response by playing recordings of morning doves wings in either startled or non-startled takeoffs for other morning doves as well as cardinals and sparrows and the experiment found that all of the birds were startled and fled by the startled wing whistles Hmm. and that so it suggests that these sonations serve as predator alarms for the whole area Hmm. it's really interesting um that that paper was titled morning dove zenaida macrora wing whistles may contain threat related information for con and heterospecifics and that was by seth coleman in i'm gonna do my best here naturwissenschaften in june 13th of 2008 very cool and finally to wrap things up for the morning dove aesthetics i'm giving them an eight out of ten hmm. um i think they have a betty boop face <laughs> do you know what i mean by this very round features sure, big big eyes. circular like purely circular eyes mm-hmm. um even like a very round forehead that i think gives it like a sort of a baby doll sort of look and then a tiny little mouth like tiny little pointy <laughs> beak like it's just it has very baby doll proportions and i think that's really cute they could be doing more with colors i think Okay. Because, like, we've seen other pigeons do a lot with iridescence or, like, rainbow colors, like the Nicobar pigeon or, like, the Victoria crowned pigeon, which has these, like, incredible plumage on its head. Mm -hmm. Like, we've seen more from pigeons. And I feel like we could be doing better, right? Like, we could maybe zhuzh it up a little bit. I think there's room there in the morning dove. But I still give them high marks because I am factoring their sounds into aesthetics that makes sense so the name morning dove comes from what is interpreted as being like a mournful sound that Mm -hmm. they make their their cooing sound is very distinct you can tell it apart from any other bird a lot of times when people me including hear this sound it sounds like an owl if you don't already know what it is true yeah so i spent a lot of my childhood thinking i was hearing like daytime owls and it was just these morning doves (laughs) um but i think the morning dove has like one of the most beautiful sounds in the world it just has like such a calming like cooing sound that is so like peaceful Mm -hmm. and it actually like evokes a very specific memory for me. Oh, really? <laughs> like when I hear a morning dove, I, I don't know, because I've heard them my whole life. Sure. Right? Like, I don't know why I associate them really strongly with a very specific like scene, but it reminds me of summer summers that I spent in St. Petersburg uh, with my dad's family mm-hmm. and specifically like laying on the floor in my grandparents' living room because they had like a, a screened in front porch that they often just left the front door open to. Mm-hmm. So you were usually getting like air and stuff from, from outside, which meant we could hear all of the like birds outside and there was mm-hmm. morning doves outside that that would just like and there must have been a pair of them out there because because it's a it's a courtship cry that they're you know when they're cooing like that they're usually courting each other mm-hmm. so we would hear the sort of sound like just outside the door so whenever i hear that sound i think of like laying on the floor in my grandparents living room usually like coloring in, in a coloring book or something and and hearing the morning doves and it's just, it's a very pleasant memory that I, I associate with them i've seen a lot of like videos like tiktoks and tweets and stuff recently of people saying that they never hear morning doves anymore. Really? And it sounds like people are expressing concern like about the populations of morning doves. Hmm. And it, it reminds me of this phenomenon where people think that roly-polies are going extinct because they never see them. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like, okay. Yeah, I think we talked about this like just personally before. Mm-hmm. Right. Where people were talking about they, they don't see as many roly-polies as they did, specifically as when they were children. Right. Which, from your perspective, might seem like a chronological decrease in the amount of that animal because you don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. But what it more likely is, is just you don't overlap with that animal as much anymore because your lifestyle has changed. Yeah. Right? Like, how often are you digging in the dirt anymore these days? Like, yeah. if you're not spending a lot of time 
playing on the ground and looking at the dirt and looking in the grass and stuff, then you're not going to see them anymore. Right. And when you're standing, you know, the distance between your eyes and the ground has effectively doubled. Right? Yeah. So you're not going to notice <laughs> little guys crawling around in there. Yeah. But same for the morning dove. I think that like, because they typically do when they are cooing, it's usually, you know, in kind of the twilight hours, like mm. early in the morning, maybe you're just like not awake as much, or maybe you're just not living in the same spaces that those animals are as common in like i think it's just for a lot of people it's like you're just not necessarily like you just might be spending time outside much later than you were when you were a kid and you had to like wake up at like sunrise to catch the bus or something that makes sense i associate the cooing sound with like twilight and dew on grass yeah it feels like uh waking up early for like a school field trip Mm -hmm. like getting on the bus and yeah it does have that kind of so like if you're not in that situation as much then no you're not going to hear the bird that much anymore but the birds are still there they're sure. they're uh conservation wise they're of least concern they are fine <laughs> I had to make a new category <laughs> <laughs> concerningly abundant <laughs> <laughs> they're all right it is fine uh they're very popular game birds really? so yeah people hunt them and for fun i assume but yeah like for for fun or for food like, you know you could just eat them i've never eaten them but you can if you want to so they're of least concern. One thing is that being birds that do forage for seeds on the ground, they are really vulnerable to, like I mentioned earlier, ground dwelling predators like cats. Yeah. So cats are a huge predator for morning doves. Um, so if you really like morning doves and you want to like support them and, and make a, a friendly space to morning doves, if you do have a cat, just keep it inside. That's all. Keep your cat inside so that your cat isn't eating up all your morning doves. Or lots of other things, too. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your pets inside, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I this is a you know an animal that's kind of always been around for me. I, because we don't live in a very urban area, we see morning doves more than we see, you know, common pigeons, that's I think. True. We love our morning doves in our backyard. Mm. Aren't they sweet? They are. They look congregate sometimes as a big group some sitting on the fence some on the ground yeah yeah it's really sweet sometimes when they forage together because they'll they'll actually come into our backyard and Mm. like pick seeds up off the ground and they're very we love our our morning doves they're Mm -hmm. very sweet so i thought it'd be nice to talk about them yeah it's a cool critter and they're based anarchists apparently (laughs) (laughs) well thanks hon Thank you. And thank you, listener, for spending this time with us today. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a good review for us on your podcast app of choice. You can also hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, TikTok. I'll have links to everything in the episode description so that you can scroll and click through. And also, if you have an animal you want to hear us talk about on the show, email it to me at ellen at justthezooofus.com. And we'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside the other wonderful shows. And thank you, Louis Zong, for our amazing theme music. People have been showing us the dances that they do to our really? theme music, and it is so good. Aww. It's very cute. It's it's always very bouncy and like very punctuated along with the animal sounds. So nice. uh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> So if you are a theme song dancer, then now's your chance. Here it comes. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.